0: Good morning, and uh, good to see you. This, um, yeah. we, uh, we're going to wrap up this series of the fall uh, this morning, and what we've been looking at, if you're, if you're visiting, first off, again, welcome. So glad you're here. And if there's any questions we can ask while you're here, please catch one of us after the service or someone next to you. We'd love to, to help answer any, any um, questions you have or help you out. But um, if you are new, we've been studying this this subject of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, and we've been looking at it from the Gospel of Matthew. So we're going to wrap that up this morning, and next Sunday is the first Sunday of Advent, and so we're really going to up our focus on the incarnation, the teaching of God becoming a man in person of Jesus Christ. So we're going to be in three uh, passages. We're going to be in part of Matthew 8. In Matthew 13 and Matthew 25. And so if you don't have a Bible, you can follow there in, uh, in the bulletin. Let me ask you this. Are, are, if you are a Christian, and I don't assume that if you're sitting here that you are, but if you are a Christian, are you connected with anyone on social media who routinely and actively makes fun of Christians? I have about three on Facebook. I've got about three Facebook friends who will, again, actively and at least semi-regularly make fun of Christians. Uh, somehow we're Facebook friends, but it's, it's there. And, you know, as a Christian, <clears throat> and as somebody who, you know, I'm a Christian and in a ways, in a way I, I'm one of those faces that gets identified with it just from what I do. Vocationally, when I read that, Sometimes I just think, okay, I, like you don't even have your facts straight on this one. But then sometimes I read it and go, ah, you got your facts straight on this one. Uh, you know, like it's true. This is this is what we're like. And I I think that we would be doing ourselves a disservice, and I think we would kind of be fudging if we, did, especially as we're thinking about the kingdom of God and the people who enter the kingdom of God, who are part of the kingdom of God, I think, you know, we're doing ourselves a disservice if we don't acknowledge that even as members of the kingdom, sometimes we look up at the people in the kingdom. Now, we could do this from just looking in the mirror. But we look around at the kingdom and go, "Is, is this as good as it gets? Like, all these big promises, all these big things that God did, all these great truths in the Bible, all these resources, like, is this... Is this, is this what you get? Is this what you end up with? And I hope that nudges our insides to want to think about not just the now of God's kingdom, but the future of the kingdom. I'm calling the sermon The Future of the Kingdom. I exercised amazing restraint. It would be so easy to have entitled the sermon The Return of the King. And you know I want to do that as a Tolkien guy, okay? But I, I pulled the reins. Because it's not so much about the details of Christ's return, but it really is about, all right, what will the kingdom be? So, yeah, let's call it the future of the kingdom. These are not the only passages in Matthew about that. These are representative. There are others that speak to the future of it. But let's look at these to think about our own future. And we'll start in Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 5. I'm really going to focus on just two verses of this first part, but I wanted you to hear it in context as Jesus in Judea speaks to, or in, or in, a, in the Holy Land, speaks to a Gentile and about a Gentile. Romans 8, beginning in verse 5. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, as Jesus, appealing to him. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Chapter 13, verse 41. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Chapter 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on the left. And the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Amen. This is God's Word. Let's pray together. Father, you know us and you know to the deepest detail how we do life. And you know that what comes naturally to us is to live by sight and not by faith and to uh, think that our lives will be like what we think they are or how we think they will be rather than what you have said our lives will be. And as we come this way, we pray that chambers of our heart where your word has never gone, we pray that it would go down into those chambers maybe to come into our heart for the very first time, maybe the words of Jesus to go into our hearts for the very first time this morning. We ask that you would do this, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. A lot of you know that before uh, I was a pastor, I worked in campus ministry. had a lot of friends that worked in campus ministry. Had one tell me about a conversation that he had one time, and uh, it was not with a student. It was with a staff member of another college ministry. And I'm not going to say which one. I actually don't recall which one. But they were talking. They were talking about their work, talking about working with students, talking about what are the things that I most want, you know, students to get. And my friend was talking uh, with his staff member, and the the staff made use of, like, a a gospel tract a lot. You know, like a little booklet that just kind of the, the bare bones, you know, here's just sort of the basics to know about the, the good news, the Christian faith. And, uh, and this other guy was asking my friend, why, why doesn't your ministry use something like that? I mean, why would you not use something like, like this? And, uh, and w- my friend's response has stayed with me, and this was maybe 20 years ago, but, but he said this, I want you to tell me, because you know the content of this booklet, I want you to tell me, if someone listens to you go through that booklet and they say, no thanks... I don't want it. I don't want to believe in Jesus. I don't want to be a Christian. According to that booklet, what's the worst case scenario? Now, there's all kinds of gospel booklets used by all kinds of, you know, you know tracts used by all kinds of ministries. But in this particular one, the staff member said, based on this, it would be that you don't have abundant life and you miss out on a lot of God's blessings. And my friend said, now, tell me this. From the Bible as a whole, and, and from the New Testament in particular, what's the worst-case scenario if I don't want to believe in Christ and I refuse to be a Christian? And to this person's credit, I can't remember if it was a he or she, but, but they said, you perish. Forever. And, you know, credit where credit's due. They were right. And that's a hard thing to acknowledge. It's hard to acknowledge that that is what the Bible said. The reason that even though it's hard to say it, it's hard for us to talk about it, the reason we should feel strength to acknowledge it, and I'm not saying lead with it or take delight in it, but be willing to be honest with ourselves and with others about it, is because Jesus himself never shrunk from doing so. No one is more loving than Jesus. No one gave their life away more than Jesus. No one comforted like Jesus. But no one in the Bible talks more about eternal destiny. You know, the comforting aspect of it and the incredibly disturbing aspect of it. Nobody does that more than Jesus. So I I want us to participate in that this morning. I want to think about the future of the kingdom. And as we think about the future of the kingdom, and you probably heard this in the passage, there is an element to it that disturbs us. And there is an incredibly comforting reality in the future of the kingdom. I mean, comfort falls short. I want to think about the future of the kingdom in this way, that in the future, the kingdom will be clarified and the kingdom will be consummated, okay? In the future, don't know when, the kingdom will be clarified, and the kingdom will be consummated. What do we mean that the kingdom will be clarified? Here's the thing, and, and I can't remember if we've said this along the way, but I'll say it now, now that the series is over, that in the Old Testament, you don't really hear Israel typically called the kingdom of God, but what you do here is God referred to as the just unequivocal King, and that He has dominion everywhere. His His kingdom will never end. That's celebrated and sung. It's in the Psalms, and it's never it's not disputed by Israel. And because on the one hand, God rules over everything. That's His kingdom. But in this special way, He's King of His people. He's King of Israel. Uh, that's where his law is acknowledged and obeyed. That's where he is worshipped and named and celebrated. That's where he is followed and obeyed, right? Israel, the people of God in a very unique way, the institution of Israel, like people descended from Abraham, uh, men circumcised on the eighth day and their families, they are institutionally the kingdom of God. In Jesus' day, the Jews would understand themselves to be the people of the kingdom or the sons of the kingdom. Now, what did you hear in a couple of these passages? I just want to look at two excerpts here. Go to the top one, chapter 8, the part that's in bold. and start in verse 11. Now, Jesus is struck by the faith of this Roman not a Jewish man, but a very Gentile man. And he's commenting on it to the people who are around him who are listening. And he said, I, you know, I haven't found this kind of faith in Israel. He's talking about, I haven't found this kind of faith in ethnic Judaism around me. And then in verse 11, he says this. I tell you, <clears throat> many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 12. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. And then he says something similar in chapter 13. Look in verse 41. The Son of Man, and that's him talking about himself, will send his angels and they'll gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. And get that, he'll gather them, not out of the world, out of his kingdom and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And in Matthew, when you see this phrase, weeping and gnashing of teeth, it has a definite article in the Greek. There's the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. And what is Jesus acknowledging there? You know, in a a fallen world, messed up lives, messed up people, messed up world, we weep, you know? Sometimes we gnash our teeth. Ugh, this is so painful. Ugh, I can't take this anymore. We weep and gnash now, but there's going to be a definitive, ultimate weeping, an ultimate gnashing of teeth. And Jesus says the people who are going to be doing that will be people who were, at some level, in the kingdom. And then they're not in the kingdom, and they're in outer darkness. What is he talking about? He's talking about this. In his day, what he was watching happen in his ministry is that the very people who in mass should have welcomed him. You, know, you are the fulfillment of our scriptures. You are our promised Messiah. The very people who should have welcomed him and accepted him, overwhelmingly, with very few exceptions, rejected him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him, as John says. And Jesus says this, the very people who institutionally were in the kingdom, when they reject me, when they reject their Messiah, when they reject the only hope of eternal life, the sons of the kingdom will be removed from the institution and cast into outer darkness. And those who did turn to the king, Jew or Gentile, they will be shown for what they really are and what they always will be, that they are the true kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. Now, what is the takeaway? I think here's the big takeaway. The Jews in Jesus' day were in the right institution. Even Paul talks about this in his letters, especially in Romans. He says, man, It is a privilege to be Jewish. He talks about, they're my kinsmen, they're my brothers. His heart breaks for him. He says, man, of all the peoples of the world, all the ethnicities, they have the law. They have the prophets. They have the oracles. They have the covenants. They have the patriarchs. They have got all the goody you can have. But all that was supposed to lead to whom? To the Messiah. To Jesus. And here's, the, here's the thing. Think about Israel <clears throat> before Jesus and in Jesus' day. Israel was in the right institution, and it's the institution that God founded. Israel didn't make itself up. And institutions matter. Even the institutional life of Israel, prophets and priests and kings and temple, and synagogue, all that mattered. It's not that it doesn't matter. But at the end of the day, ultimately, eternally, you're not in the eternal kingdom by having a relationship with the institution. At the end of the day, hear me again, it's not that institutions don't matter. But at the end of the day, you're in the eternal kingdom of God through relationship with a person, and who is the person? The King. And think about this: a man in the 1700s who was used on both sides of the Atlantic, George Whitfield. Um, if you read about American church history, the early part, uh, really kind of colonial, you'll read about George Whitfield, spelled like Whitefield, but it's Whitfield. He was used on both sides of the Atlantic. And not everybody he talked to, but overwhelmingly, most of the people that he would speak to were church people. Overwhelmingly, he spoke to people who were on the rolls of the Church of England. They were christened. <clears throat> they grew up in the church. They had heard sermons. They had taken the Lord's Supper. And his message that God used on both sides of the Atlantic is you must be born again. You won't hear him saying, the church doesn't matter. But what you'll hear him saying is, you're not in the eternal kingdom through your relationship with an institution. That still holds true. And I I, I don't say this this morning to cast a big pall over our joy, because we're going to end on a note of joy. But... You know, like when someone joins downtown Prez, they try on our worship for a while. Maybe they go to a community group for a while. They take the foundations class. And then finally, if they want to move ahead with membership, they sit down with one of our elders and they talk about, you know, their life, their understanding of the gospel. Our elders cannot see anyone's heart. All we can see is if somebody... can give what we call a a credible profession, like they can credibly explain, I believe the good news. I believe that here's who Jesus is and here's what Jesus did and I believe that he did that for me. That's all we can see. Which means, again, not trying to be ominous, but we can admit people into the institution who don't yet have a relationship with the king. And we have to ask this question from time to time. Do you know Christ? And I don't mean know about. I mean The big epiphany for me when I became a Christian as a church young man in high school was that, you know, over those 15 years or so, I had learned a lot about Jesus, and I bet... At 15, I could kind of hold my own with a lot of people in this room in Sunday school, answering the teacher's questions. That's great. I knew about him. And then he opened my eyes. And he opened my ears. And I saw that I'm the big sinner. And no one needs saving more than me. And I began to know him. Because he let me. Do you know Christ? And I think especially if you're here and you grew up in the church, especially you need to ask yourself this question. The the generations of church people in your family might go back like more generations than you can document. And at one level, that is a huge blessing. But you'll stand before God naked, as you actually are, and generations of church affiliation will not clothe you on that day. Do you know the King? And if you you know if even right now, like literally right now in your heart, you can feel in your chest, I don't. I and mean, here's the good news: turn to Him and say, "Help." turn to him and say, show yourself to me. Let me know you. Whatever it means to believe you, trust you, rest upon you, would you enable me to do that? There will be those removed from the institution, put into outer darkness, because they were never at a heart level in a relationship with the king. The kingdom's clarified at the end. Now, that's the hard truth. Here's the comforting truth: the kingdom, the true kingdom, at the end, will be consummated. And uh, what does this look like? And I'm just going to give three three things: feasting, shining, and inheriting. Feasting, shining, and inheriting. Look in chapter eight again, verse eleven. I mean, this is an amazing claim. J- Jesus, you know, we, we've said before what, what impresses Jesus? When you're in the Son of God, what, you know, what impresses the Son of God? He's impressed by great faith. And this man <clears throat> grasped what many, most ethnic Jews of Jesus' day could not grasp. Jesus is so powerful that he can just say what needs to happen and it'll happen. He can speak with his authority. Even from a distance, he doesn't have to geographically be there. And Jesus is struck by the man's belief. And he says this to the people around him. He says, <clears throat> I'm sorry, I'm clearing my throat, getting over a cold. I tell you, many will come from east and west. Now, guess what? This is Jesus talking about us the west, way west. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now that's a head nod to this rich biblical theme of ultimately, there's an ultimate great consummation and feast of God with His people. This was in the Old Testament prophecies. That Marcia read, and it talks about the Lord of hosts, the Lord of heaven's armies, is going to throw a feast, and it talks about there's going to be aged wine there and the best of meat. Like one person wrote that apparently eternity is not a low cholesterol affair. Thank you, Lord. You know, there's a reason that Jesus keeps being around food, and food is around Jesus. If you've ever read the book, A Meal with Jesus, that's quoted on the front of the bulletin, it, it takes this theme and runs with it that everything is moving toward a great feast. And I don't know if you've ever really been to a feast. I don't mean like a fill in the blank Thanksgiving, which is amazing, but a true feast like maybe where there are courses after all this planning and all this foresight and this appetizer is paired with this thing and this entree is paired with this thing and this dessert is paired with this thing and there's this kind of wine and this kind of coffee and this kind of, this, this kind of thing to cleanse your palate and the setting and the aroma and the, the feel of it. If you've been to a true feast, it washes all over you. Like it washes over your whole body. Everything is moving toward where God's people. It's not just that we're in an eternal Bible study, but something happens to us where in our body, in our soul, there's this just profound, felt experience of fullness and joy. All senses firing. It's feasting, it's shining. Did you catch that in the passage that Marcia read from Daniel, it talks in the Old Testament about God's people rising from the dead and shining. And then Jesus says this in uh, chapter 13, verse 43. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Um, If you know some Old Testament, do you know the story about when Moses had been in close proximity to God and he comes off the mountain. And Moses disturbs the Israelites because his face shines. Why does his face shine? Because he's been in the presence of God and it was so disturbing to the Israelites they made him wear a veil over his face because it was so weird. And it's the divine light. Did the light originate with Moses from his goodness? No. It was a derivative light from proximity to God. And the prophet says this, and Jesus says this that one day we will, let's just say this one day the members of the kingdom don't live by faith, you live by sight. You're in such close proximity to God. He is seen and experienced. You're so close to Jesus that we shine, that we transfigure. Any worries about physical health and pain and ailments will go away when we shine. And um, we inherit. Chapter 25, verse 34 says, The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom, and get this part, prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Meaning, this was always plan A. The whole thing creation, the fall, the entrance of sin promise of redemption, the coming of the Messiah, the ultimate judgment. It was all plan A, prepared from the foundation of the world. And finally, God's people inherit everything. Like, you're co-heirs with Jesus. What does Jesus deserve to inherit? The cosmos. Everything all of God's approval, all of the Father's joy and celebration, members of the kingdom are co-heirs with him as he does. And he willingly shares it with his brothers and sisters. You know, coming up on Thanksgiving, I thought about um, a friend of mine in Dana's talking about her grandfather, uh, grandmother. And I don't know if she's still living or not, but it really just this description from years ago has stayed with me. She said that her grandmother, she loved talking to her at Thanksgiving because <clears throat> her grandmother was such a good cook, and she always referred to the turkey as a him. She would say, like, you grab him, and then you stuff him, and you got to hold him this way. was always like a male pronoun for some reason. But just a, a funny lady. But, but this friend said that she could, she could hardly talk about her, her grandmother to other people without tearing up because her grandmother had just suffered so much. She was a Great Depression baby. And she lived through World War II. And, um, you know, in her old age, she just she suffered physically so much. But when you're with her, <clears throat> you aren't talking about those things. She was so interested in you. And, and you know, I, I, I bet you know people like that, or you've had a relative like that, you know, especially that greatest generation. There's something of the beauty of Christ in people like that? I mean, the reason that the members of the kingdom inherit everything is because Jesus gave everything away. And when I say everything away, I mean He reached the point where He is homeless and naked and abandoned and hated and God the Father has to turn His back on Him. That is to lose everything. Why? Because he loves this kingdom, and this is what it takes for us to have everything. For us to shine, his glory has to be veiled, and the skies have to go dark so that we can shine. Um, Why do we need to hear this? And I, you know, go on and on about that, but I'm I'm just going to end on this. Dana and I were eating with some friends and we were talking about, you know, you hit these thresholds in life. It's different times for different people and different things, I think, trigger this. But you hit thresholds where all of a sudden you kind of look up and go, oh. And and maybe up to that point you thought, one of these days I'm going to do such and such. And you get to a point in life and you realize, no, I'm not. Or one of these days I'm going to look a certain way. And you reach a point where you realize, no, I'm not. Or one of these days, my family is going to feel this way. Or this relationship is going to be reconciled. And you, you realize, no, it's not. And that conversation made me think about a James Taylor song. It's not a famous one. I think it's from the 70s called Another Gray Morning. And it's about a mother of it, at least one young child, and it's just, it's talking about the grind of her life and the grayness of it. And one of the lyrics is that she hears the baby waking up downstairs, she hears the foghorn calling out across the sound, repetition in the morning air, it's just too much to bear, and no one seems to care. Like, it's nothing dramatic. It's just a mother of a young child, and she's home alone, and she's going to do the exact same thing that she does every single day, and it's just grinding the life out of her, the sameness and the grayness of it. And at the end of the song, she gets really in a fight with her husband, boyfriend, whatever, and I wonder if it's actually James Taylor writing out of his own experience, where she says to him, Move me, move me. I'm locked up inside. Then he says, I didn't understand her. God knows I tried. And then she says, make me angry or just make me cry. But no more gray mornings. I think I'd rather die. And the song ends. There's no resolution. And I, I wonder how many people in this room feel that. I mean, that really walk around like, okay, yeah, I do believe in Jesus. I do believe we go to heaven. But like, is this as good as it gets? And man, we've got to remind each other over and over and over of the resurrection. That if you trust in the king and you are in his eternal kingdom, it will not forever be like this. You will not forever be like you are. You will feast. And you won't have to brace yourself for when the shoe drops and I get a bad phone call. There won't be any. You'll feast and you will shine and you will inherit. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this, your word. Would you grant us belief? Would you help us in our unbelief? Would you help us to remember the future? What you've revealed? And would we we remind each other as fellow pilgrims we ask in Christ's name, amen.